My name is John, and today I'm going to be joined by David. You guys might know him as Shamrock Balls, and we are going to be talking about the 007 on Her Majesty's Secret Service. This was the first and only film to have George Lazenby in it, and he plays the title character of James Bond. And David, why don't you introduce yourself to the folks out there? How you doing? I'm David. I'm also known as Shamrock Balls. Um, this is the first time I've actually done a podcast or reviewed a movie online, so... Um, looking forward to it. It's going to be exciting, I hope. <laughs> oh, I think he'll be great, guys. I think he will. So, The Honor Majesty Secret Service was released in 1969. It's directed by Peter R. Hunt, who actually did the cinematography on the previous Bond films. He, They liked how he was shooting the movie, how, you know, they had all those jump cuts in the fight scenes. So they kind of wanted to give him his shot. They promised him he would get a director's job, even though he wasn't the first choice for this. He got the job, and then they hired George Lazenby, who I believe was a model, right, David? Yeah, uh, from what I heard, he, he was a model. Um, when I was growing up, I heard he used to do advertisements for Fry's Chocolate. Did you ever hear of that, John? I heard he did advertisements. I didn't know what he was actually doing, but that's pretty cool. There was a there's a chocolate bar, uh, and I'm near starting to see a chocolate bar over here. This side of the world, it's called Fry's Chocolate. Huh. I and I believe that he actually done the adverts for that. And his nickname over here was Big Fry. But they did. I read that they called him Big Fry. And now that makes a lot of sense as to why they would do that. Because <laughs> he was a big guy, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, he's, he's a, handsome, a handsome guy. Um, yeah, he's, he's a good looking fella. He, uh, what's it called? He was, uh, but uh, I heard that he was uh, also uh, picked out of like 200 guys. He, when he w- went to the uh, audition, he wore a suit and he tried to do his hair just like Sean Connery, which when I was watching the movie, actually, I kind of thought he looked a little bit, his hair looked a little bit like Sean Connery. Well, I actually um, heard that he wanted the audition for the part and he found out what Connery got his suits tailored and he went and got a suit actually tailored. Really? And at that particular time, as far as I'm aware, yeah, he had a beard and long hair. He was coming out of, uh, well, it was the swinging 60s, you know, and stuff like that. And he actually went to the barbers where Connery used to get his haircut and asked, give me the same haircut that Sean Connery gave me. <laughs> and when he went in for his audition, he had the Connery haircut and he had the, se- the same style of suit that Connery used to wear. That's very interesting. So that, that all went in his advantage. That makes, hey, I mean, I guess he had to do something to stand out because he had no acting credits before this. So he had to make sure that he stood out above everyone else because there were other people going for the job. He just, I guess he got lucky. They wanted him. They wanted to sign him to a multi-film deal, but he didn't want it. His agent talked him out of it because... Apparently, they felt like the 70s with the counterculture coming on that James Bond was going to be a dying character. And I guess mm-hmm. his agent was wrong about that one. But from what I read also, he didn't really want to do it anymore. He kind of felt like he just didn't enjoy working on the movie that much. He had problems, I guess, with the producers, which seems like a lot of people had problems with the Broccoli producers back in the uh, 60s and 70s. You know, I actually, when I was watching this again last night, I actually felt as if, at the very start of the movie, more the start as the movie went on, he was trying to do a Sean Connery impression. Mm-hmm. I did also feel and like that. That, to me, was a mistake. I agree. I thought that he should have uh, tried something that was more him. Yeah, and maybe that was something maybe the producers wanted. And you can actually see, John, as well, when the movie actually starts, and the credits actually start, they start showing clips of the previous Bond movies. And it's as if the producers were saying, look, this may be a new actor, it may be a new face, but it's still the same character. Yes, which I guess back, like, you know, we have the internet, but back in 1969, this whole thing might have been confusing for people to switch actors like that. And I guess they were trying to show us that, yeah, it's still James Bond, it's just, it's a different guy in the suit, but... And then they also have the joke very early in the movie, like, This never happened to the other fella. Which, you know, breaking the fourth wall like that yes, to let us know. Right. Breaking the fourth wall? What did you think of that, John? I, I like that. I was actually, I forgot that happened because, again, I haven't seen this movie in a very long time. But I'm like, that's the perfect way to do that. I like that it's a little tongue-in-cheek in there because, you know, all the Bond movies are a little bit with their one-liners. And that's a really clever one. Did you like that? Um, I think it's, like you say, that we have the hindsight of, of Tang. And it's became a bit of a in-joke now, isn't it? About, because we've had so many different bonds since then you know that i think it's more acceptable now um than it ever was i, I don't know how i feel at the time if it was around at that time how i would feel about that angel did you notice that he's wearing the, the, the cravat 
that Austin Powers was. Yeah, I I didn't actually notice that. I, I mean, I, I must have just blew by me about that. I didn't even pick up on that, but that would make a lot of sense because I mean, the Austin Powers movies do pay a lot of homage. But I always felt like it was more like to the Connery Bonds than this one. But I guess yeah, they did take some stuff from this, which is cool. I like that because they are definitely spoof movies of the James Bond movies, a hundred percent. Yeah, and I feel as if that this this to me feels like the most sixties out of them all of that period oh my god yes um, with the score and the looks um yeah it just it just feels more 60s for some reason i don't know why well actually i noticed this right what'd you think of the new bond theme it's still the same theme but they played it on like uh almost like a synthesizer which is weird for the 60s and i thought i had I actually really personally like that, but I'm just a I'm, I like that kind of score. I like Sith scores, and it was cool to see it played in that way. But I, I don't know; it kind of threw me off a little bit at first until I started to like it. But what do you think of that? I love it. I've, I've actually been going to my notes here that the, the score was very sixties, but it, it's brilliant. It, it could have been very actually um, a bit of a risk for them, you know, to turn around and say, "Look, this this is the this is the same character, but we've got a new actor." But then they changed the, the score. Then they kept the, the Bond, John Barry kept the Bond theme. But he's got this other kind of uh, tune theme for the movie, which wasn't really the actual Bond song. It wasn't done in the state of the Bond song, but what we're used to in the previous Bond movies, where you had like Goldfinger and you had Thunderball playing or You Only Live Twice. You know, you had a completely different theme at the start. And then the Bond song actually develops as, as the movie goes on and, and the love story evolves between him and Tracy. Um, and I have to say that Bond song, we have all in the world. I potentially think it could be the best Bond song ever written. What do you think? I think I agree. I, I was surprised at how much I really enjoyed it. I, I loved it. I mean, I have a soft spot for the Bond theme and um, the way the score works in, uh, I think it was... Uh, it was one of the Timothy Dalton ones. It wasn't Licensed to Kill. It was the other one, uh, The Living Daylights. I really have, like, yes. when they're in the snow in that scene... In the, and they got yes. the Ashton Martin driving around. The score in that is probably my favorite piece of Bond music. It's just that it plays in such a small part, but I'll actually go back on YouTube and watch that scene. <laughs> so that might... See where this leads to. <laughs> so that might be my favorite, but this is up there. 100%. I love it. I'm not saying it would be my favorite score, but I think the actual song we have all the time in the world could be potentially considered one of the best. Bond songs. I mean, nobody really thinks of that song when they think about Bond, um, but it, it, it's definitely one of the best for me. Yeah, that's the one. It's definitely one of the best. And another big change in this movie is just the tone of it. It's it's a lot more grounded. It's a lot more of just slowly paced romance. You know, they kind of mm -hmm. took the gadgets out, and you know, the pacing. I'll admit, in points, was a little bit slow for me. I don't know if you felt it at yeah. all. Yeah, I, I think that um, watching it on the, on the whole, I think that it could have been taken in and around the, the middle of the movie when he gets to the resort. Hundred um, percent. That's I agree. That's that's my that was my biggest flaw too. <laughs> and then and then when he escapes from the resort and then he bumps into Tracy and she rescues him and then there's another chase and then they go to the barn, which is far enough. But the next day they're skiing for some reason and they're still being chased. Yeah, I had a. <laughs> I didn't understand that one either. And actually, I had a little bit, like, for the most part, the effects in this movie were really good. But some of the skiing scenes, like, because they did take the time to shoot a lot of it. And from what I read, they had just had some problems. So they had to do some uh, rear projector stuff. But when they cut to the rear projector stuff and it's so close up, it's so noticeable. <laughs> but they. It, it certainly is. I mean, they tried. I'll give them, like, I was reading about it, and they just couldn't make it work 100% to get the close-up. So I'm like, okay, I, I could forgive them for that. It is 1969, so, but it just, it would take you out of it, because for the most part, the movie took a lot of that rear projector stuff out and went for some really good shooting techniques, even in all the fight scenes. I, I like the jump cuts that they do. It kind of feels like it had an inspiration on, like, the Bourne series or something like that. Yeah, the fight scenes or the, the jump cuts, yeah, at first, they're a wee bit jarring, but you get kind of get used to it. Um, the fight with uh, the, the guy in Tracy's room where he puts him through, puts him through the. Do you remember the wooden? Yeah, cuts? yeah, he puts him through yeah. it. Yeah, no, I, I I liked all that stuff. I thought that's like you know, one thing though. Early in the movie, it kind of fixed it with the cinematography. Is it, it was a little dark. I felt like they had the low exposure mm -hmm. on it, but then they kind of adjusted to that because they. 
overall, it's it's a beautiful looking movie. Yeah, you're very much saying about it being a not grounded, and um, it, it does look really, really nice. I mean, a lot of the effects and stuff like that, me, me personally, it doesn't bother me because unless it's absolutely terrible, I can actually put myself in the time period of when the movie was released, and I can forgive it a lot for it. I mean, if the, if the story's good and the acting's good, which is a bit, actually a bit dodgy with Big Fry, but I can forgive some of the special effects. You don't have to be perfect, uh, because I understand that, that that all evolves with time, you know, special effects always evolve. I mean, I can still sit down and watch King Kong in 1933, and enjoy it, even though those effects are outdated. Yeah, I get that, and I can watch mo- older movies too. And like, you know, it, it's just—I don't know what it is. Sometimes with a rear, when the when the effects kind of just like jump around a little bit, it'll kind of just mm-hmm. throw me off. But I can always get into it. Like, I, I actually have a lot harder a time, I think, with '60s movies than I do like with '30s movies. Like, if I watch The Invisible Man from what is that, 1939, I don't really have a problem with yeah. it. But if I watch some James Bond movies from the 60s, I kind of have a little bit of an issue with how it looks. And, I mean, this one less than the other ones because this one felt more like, um, just, it felt more like a movie. It felt, even though it's a James Bond movie, it really felt like they were taking a risk to make a film here. Like, kind of like what they would eventually end up doing, like, they tried with the Dalton movies and then what they would definitely get nailed with the uh, Daniel Craig movies. Yeah, well, the funny thing is that um, you were saying about changing the actor, kind of throwing the audience's off. Something which crossed my mind, which I'm sure this isn't uh, a new thing for, for fans of Bond, is we went from You Only Live Twice to On A Majesty's Secret Service, and Blofeld doesn't recognize Bond. Yeah, that one, <laughs> that kind of threw me off too. Like, how did you not, you had a face-to-face confrontation with him in, what was it now, one movie ago, and I get it, we yes. had to change actors, which... I was reading that they really liked having Donald Pleasance, and for some reason they didn't want to bring him back, which I thought was strange. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just weird that they chose to change actors there. Not that I didn't like the actor who's in here. I actually really did. I thought he did a phenomenal job. Yes, Tully Savalas was, was very good. I have to say, like, uh, Donald Pleasance probably really my favorite Yeah, me too. It's Donald Pleasance. <laughs> it's Donald Pleasance. It's Dr. Loomis. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you bring him in. I'm always gonna prefer him. But this guy, he does. What's his? I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank on his name. But he did a. He does a great job. Yeah, he does a good job. I really like him as Blofeld. Actually, he kind of had some more of a a serious tone. He didn't go for the voice that you know Donald Pleasance went for. But overall, I I enjoyed it. Well, the thing is with Kelly Savalas is that um he, he bring he brings his own kind of swagger to to that role. Um, you can see him at the very start when he has the cat. He's actually dressed like Blofeld was in the last movie when he had the cat. Yes. Right? So there is that kind of connection that oh, this is the same Blofeld. But the thing that I'm saying about it throwing us off continuity ways is that um, I think we had talked about this before, John, is that there's a Spectre trilogy in the James Bond novels. Mm-hmm. And it's basically where Bond fights against Blofeld and Spectre. And that trilogy basically starts with Thunderball, then Honor Master's Secret Service. And in the third book is You Only Live Twice. Ah, okay. So, yeah, from a movie point of view, Automatically Secret Service is out of continuity with You Only Live Twice. So we went Thunderball, You Only Live Twice, and then Automatically Secret Service. So ideally, this is supposed to go in, in, in between them two movies, which is, I'm kind of wondering, is that why they didn't change the movie? You know, that, version? That, that that's very possible, actually, because... You know, like you said, he didn't recognize him, and he had a face-to-face with him, so maybe that's exactly why. And they wanted to be, this is like the closest they've ever come to going from book to movie, where they were trying to make the book just like the movie. I mean, the movie just like the book. They didn't want to take anything out, so it was supposed to be a real faithful adaptation. They said that the director was coming on set every day with the book in his hand, so he wanted to make mm-hmm. sure it was as accurate as it possibly could be. And maybe people back in 1969 just wouldn't notice little things like that. But, you know, it's very noticeable now when you go and watch it. It's definitely noticeable, maybe, if you're, if you're watching them in chronological order. And I'm just wondering, as an experiment, I wonder would it work to watch Thunderball, then on Monsey Secret Service, and then you only place to see if that makes some kind of sense, you know, continuity-wise. Now, 
What do you think? Do you think back in the 60s, like, people would just go to these movies kind of almost like serials, like, where they're one-offs, where you don't really, are, where you're not really supposed to, like, think about the previous movies? You're just supposed to go in there, enjoy a contained story, and walk out because, you know, none of the Bond girls come back until we really get to the Daniel Craig movies. So maybe that was the idea, and if you were around then, you just kind of knew going in, like, it's a different story. You know, maybe some characters change, but it's just strange a lot of that those aspects are in these movies. Possibly. Um, when you think about this, the 60s and stuff in movies, the, there was sequels didn't really exist in the 60s. No. You know, and, you know when you think about, like, um, the sequels that we're, we're aware of, you know, talk about, talk about, like, Jaws 2 or Superman 2 or Rocky 2 and 3, you know, back then they were making sequels to Bond movies, but they had completely different names. Yeah, they were just literally, they would just, the only thing that would stay is just James Bond or 007. Like, you just knew it was like the next chapter in his story, but it's, you know, we kind of get into it. We just know James Bond has these tropes that they always want to hit. Like, but actually, this one kind of took a step back on the tropes because we really don't get any gadgets for the most part. We barely get any money penny or we get a little bit of M. But uh, actually, one thing I wanted to bring up to you because I just, I didn't even notice this. I read it in the Wikipedia, but. I thought that when Money Penny gave him wrote out the resignation for him, she talked M out of agreeing to it, just saying giving him a vacation. But she actually wrote out the two weeks for him. That's what he requested. I, I didn't realize that until I read it after the fact. I never. I always just thought that she still wrote out the resignation and just talked M into giving him a vacation, and that's why he thanked her. So I misread that whole scene wrong. Right. Okay. <laughs> Did you? Maybe he. Yeah, he probably he was out of Oregon. He thought that. M wasn't gonna do that. Yeah, that's how I I read it. I just thought that M wouldn't honor it. Like you know, he's just mad because he felt disrespected. And actually, that was the worst. I felt like George Lazenby kind of acted in the movie was in that one scene because it kind of he kind he didn't come off like James Bond. He kind of came off like a whiny kid in that scene. Like he didn't get his way. <laughs> <laughs> like a petulant kid. Yeah, <laughs> it just didn't feel. And it was only in that scene. Like it was weird. For the most part, he had is like you know he's James Bond. You know he's he's the man, he's Devonair, but in that scene he kind of felt like, oh, I didn't get my way, so I'm going to resign now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I'm taking the football home. Exactly. <laughs> and that's what I felt like. It should, but it was just in that one scene, so I felt like that's where, you know, having a more experienced actor might have helped them because it felt like he, if Sean Connery was in that scene, he would have played it a little bit different. He probably would have had the courage to talk to the director about the script Whereas yep. a guy like this, they kind of, he was saying like they kind of they left him alone. They didn't make him feel comfortable. And you know, being a new actor, never acting before, except in commercials, and now you're James Bond. You're the man. I'm sure yeah. he didn't have the car. I couldn't do it. <laughs> well, yes, I'm sure he was under a lot of pressure. You know, you know, to perform. And um, as as you say, John, I agree. I, I think that if Connery or even if that happened, Roger Moore's first movie. I think that the film itself would have been would be elevated even more. I think it would have been a better performance with a better bond in there. And it's no offense to George Lazenby. He don't, I think he tried his best. But there is this train of thought that every bond actor that comes along, they don't hit their stride until the third movie. I agree. I for the most part you always have to like except for, you know, you know, you have the, the you know, I think that Pierce Bronson actually his best movie is his first and they honestly go down from there but for the most part uh, up until that point yeah they don't really hit their stride till the third movie and that's what always bothered me about timothy dalton is he never got a shot at a third movie yeah and um as, as a dalton fan myself and i really like the movies that he done it would have been interesting to see if the had of made another ball in the early 90s you know what he could brought to that role yeah, I, I would have loved it. I, I personally, he's one of my favorite Bonds. Like, I love Pierce Bronson. That was, like, my first Bond. But, like, unfortunately, he just doesn't have the best movies when you go back and revisit them. They all feel very much like one-offs for the most part. And I think that's why they changed it. They did a full 180 once we get to the Daniel Craig movies. I said they tried here, though, the, to really make a serious Bond movie. And I thought they, you know, they, they nailed it for the most part. It's just a shame it... They never went back to this until they finally got to the eighties. They did. They almost. They did a one eighty here until Roger Moore. Yeah, I mean, the next one is actually Diamonds Are Forever, and. Um, oh yeah, well they go back to Connery for one movie. They go back to Connery, and it's it's really a kind of it's like a carry on. Yeah, they cut. And it starts with him looking for Blofeld because of what happened at the end of Majesties. 
So tie, that 100% ties in. Yeah, I got to re- that's the, well, that's next up on the list to rewatch. Yeah. That's one another one I don't have too much memory cuz I always feels like I actually do you know like did Connery just kind of come back as a favor? Is that why he only came back for one movie? Because it's weird that they brought him back for one then they went to Roger Moore. It's just such a weird little window there after those three movies. I'm trying to remember and I actually think he came back for the money. Well, that'll do it. <laughs> because he yeah, said never again. <laughs> and then he came back yeah, at the yeah, never say never again. I can't remember. There was a movie he came back for, John, and he got really well paid for it. And he needed the money to help something to do in Scotland. Okay. Some school in Scotland or something. I'm not sure if it was Damon's or it was maybe later in his career. Something comes to my mind about that. Oh, okay. Well, that make that would make the most sense. I always just thought it was weird that... I know that George Lazenby, he bowed out before the premiere of the first one. I mean, well, the premiere of his movie, and he actually grew a beard and everything for the premiere, and he was just like, I'm done, I'm not coming back. So I guess they kind of had a heads up, and maybe they went to Connery and said, well, listen, we need to, we already have it planned out and everything. We need somebody. Could you just do us the favor? And they probably threw him the money before they got Roger Moore. Yeah, I know that they were after Roger Moore. When, when Connery actually left after, uh, you only lived twice, they were after Connery then. I'm sorry, Connery. Moore, they were after Moore then. Yeah, they, for some reason they, could, they couldn't get him because he was doing the same. Yeah, they couldn't get him, and uh, apparently they also approached Dalton, and he was twenty-five years old at the time, and he turned them down and said he was too young for the character. So, you know, they had their actors in mind. It's just it, it still blows my mind that they did choose George Lazenby. He just feels like that a real outlier in the entire franchise, and I, I'm, I'm always fascinated by their mindset to bring in somebody who didn't act. It means like to me that they valued the look of the character and the mannerisms more than they actually valued the acting, but they put him in a movie that isn't like every other James Bond movie. So it's strange. I'm just kind of wondering where the trying to recapture the lottery, whereas like when they brought Connery in, I'm not too sure how many acting roles that Connery had had before he played Bond. I mean, he was generally in on the one. Whereas Moore, I think at that point, not that, I'm a, not that I, I know an awful lot about Roger Moore or anything, but he, he was a well-known personality, wasn't he? Because he was very famous from, well, famous enough from being in Saint, wasn't he? So, I don't know, he, and they certainly even wanted Murray even now in the early 60s. Yeah, Con- Connery? Connery wasn't, um, he wasn't like a famous actor when they brought him in, but he was, he had acting experience. Like, I remember them saying, like, he had to, he was another one that he had to shave his beard off and clean up. Like, he wasn't used to wearing suits when they first brought Connery in. And, like, they had to, like, teach him that lifestyle because that just wasn't him. I think he was, like, a working class guy from Scotland. So, Scotland, so yeah. it wasn't like that was something that was natural to him. But he did have acting experience. And it's crazy because, I mean, that's his most famous role now. And that look, that that's Sean Connery. <laughs> Yeah, when I think of Bond, I think of Connery. Yeah, he's... Um, you, you know he was Mr. Universe? I did not know that. Was he really? Yes. Like he's Mr. Universe? Man. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger, Mr. Universe? Yeah, I believe he competed in it. Yeah. Well, I guess it's pre-steroid, so you didn't have to You didn't have to be like that big. Because I can't imagine Connery looking like that. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, uh, you can actually look him up when he's doing his, his poses and all. Um, wow. That, that's what he done. I did not know that at all. That's crazy. I mean, I, you know, when I think of Connery, I never do think of, like, a muscular man. But he was. It was just... It, men looked different back in the 60s compared to 50s and 60s than eventually they would in the late 70s and 80s. In the 80s, they ballooned. Yeah, exactly. And I think Arnold had a, had a lot to do with that as well, with me. Oh, yeah, man. Arnold, this, he changed the game. Uh, have you ever seen... You've seen Pump and Iron with uh, with him and uh, Lou Ferrigno? Yes, I have, yeah. It's brilliant. Very, very funny. I just, I'll never get over the fact that Lou Ferrigno's father is basically telling him you'll never be as good as Arnold Schwarzenegger to his face. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually been a few years since I've watched it, but it, it's, I, I can't remember that, but it's very funny. Yeah, I, I just... Tell me about it that was staged, I don't know if it was staged. It's just, Arnold just always seems like... I've heard stories about him. He's just like the most arrogant person, but he does it with like such a charm. It's like people just forgive him for it. <laughs> Yeah. It's just like, he's like, he comes up to you with that big smile. And also, I mean, he's a Hulk of a man. No one's going to argue with him. So if he comes up to you and he's like a dick to your face, what are you going to do? You know? (laughs) (laughs) The only person that will argue with him is James Cameron. Yeah. Well, James Cameron never bites his tongue. And James Cameron, I think he's been hit before because of that. (laughs) Sure, didn't he? uh, 
I know it's just going off the topic here, off the point in the Terminator about I'll be back. Yeah. Arnold didn't want. Yeah, Arnold didn't want to say it that way. He didn't feel like his character, like he's like he's a robot. He's not going to say it like that. And they, him and Arnold got in a big fight about that. Apparently, right? Yeah, I think Arnold at the time was kind of he can make uh, English language classes as well to help with his English. And he says, "Why would I say I'll be back? It's I will be back." I I <laughs> never. Bernie Carbon says, "You'll say you'll say like that because that's the way I wrote it." <laughs> Yeah, you don't argue with you don't argue with Big Jim. That's what you don't do. <laughs> he doesn't. He does no, not he bite do his not. tongue. I mean, the guy's been married four times, so you can tell he's probably not the easiest man to get along with. <laughs> no, I was going to say about his appendage. John, he's been married four times. Yeah, <laughs> that's just it. They, that just means he has a hard time in general dealing with people. So, and Arnold, yeah, sure, Connor couldn't even stick him. Yeah. <laughs> And this is the guy who's made, what, three of the four highest grossing films of all time. So you can't argue with him. Listen, sometimes when, you, when you're an artist like that, you have, you have to. Um, I know we're going off totally off topic here, just thinking, just thinking about James Cameron now. It's no but, problem. Yeah, but I think the thing that is with James Cameron is that, especially at the start of his career, I think he had such a, a rough time on Piranha that he thought to himself that... I want to get my vision out there and I'm not going to let anybody stop me from doing that. I don't care who you are because it's his head on the chopping block. If it doesn't work out, he's the one getting, getting you know, fired and all the rest of it. They're ridiculed, you know, and of course, when it works out, he takes a lot of the praise, but, that, but that's fair enough. He's put himself out there. And you hear the stories of him being on set and you're especially already there. He's doing everybody's job. Yeah, I've heard all that. It's all crazy to me that he actually... Because I, the Piranha thing is fascinating because the fact that he got fired from Piranha 2 and I could see that being the thing that definitely... Because from there on, he's only he hasn't made that many movies, actually, which is a surprise considering all... I guess it's all just about the control thing. He's a perfectionist. And so that's probably why he is the way he is with all of his actors is because he wants to make sure he gets what he wants. And he just, like you said, he will not take shit from anybody because he saw it's like david fincher in the same sense but uh alien 3 you get one bad experience with the studio and then that's it now i'm on my own yeah that, that's it i can understand that you know um from a certain point of view you know because i've heard so many people say bad things about cameron but he must have just get his, his face out there and that doesn't mean i think he should be able to treat people badly but i think that if there's maybe people he's working with aren't pulling their weight or aren't doing it the way he Asked him to do it, then obviously he's gonna try and stamp that out. Like I heard a story when he was making aliens because he made it in Britain. Oh, I've heard this. Because of the unions, they had to have like a tea break every few hours, and he was big bucks for this tea break. That's just before he started. Yeah, I heard that story, and that um, Sigourney Weaver actually had to like be like the the median like the, between the the cast and crew and James Cameron because James like he would just flip out about the tea break stuff and. I've heard that also, like with George Lucas when he was shooting the Star Wars movies. With um, George Lucas, like to grab the camera, and you know, in in Britain, that's against like union rules. So he's like, "No, you got to have a cameraman, dude. You're taking a job from somebody." And that was another big problem. So it's like those cultural differences. But these directors, you know, it's their movies, and they just they hate having to actually follow rules. And yeah, they get what they want, but like you said, you gotta. You know, you got to still treat people right. And if that's the rules, yeah. you got to follow along with it a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, I, I was going to ask her, what did you think of Trizzy's dad in the um, Secret Service? I thought he was good. And, and then I read after the fact that <laughs> he was dubbed. I didn't know that. Oh, really? Yeah, he was dubbed and so was uh, Bond when he's, you know, wearing his Clark Kent uh, get up there when he's trying to blend in. They dubbed over him a little bit, too. Well, I noticed the, the dub when Bond went for the mountains, and I thought that was absolutely horrible. <laughs> and the, the dubbing was terrible, and I actually, because it was so blatant, you could tell. And I thought to myself, if that was Connery or Moore, I reckon they would have been able to pull off a different kind of uh, accent or something. Yeah, I think that's when you get Connery, that's the big big acting thing apparently lazenby was trying to do a different voice and it just didn't work so they just dubbed him over in post what the actual guy was playing that role which i guess i don't think that's possible and, but you know it's a james bond movie so i guess anything is a little bit possible well maybe the the, the voice of bond was putting on was so good that uh no felt 
never recognized him. Maybe that's why he didn't know it was him. Yeah, that's why I didn't know it was him. <laughs> He's like, ah, it can't be Bonnie. He sounds nothing like what I remember. <laughs> this isn't the same guy. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely not Bond. It's definitely the guy that I came here to tell me about my family history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, uh... I have to laugh at Tr- Tracy's dad says, uh, the Bond, I know everything you've done, done for her. And Bond says, everything? <laughs> <laughs> Well, didn't you think it was a little messed up? He's basically trying to have his daughter... He's basically just trying to have his daughter be with James Bond. He's like almost like prostituting her out, in a sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I can't imagine any father saying, um, I wanted to marry my daughter because if she can play the mom and make stuff there a lot, then maybe she, she'll give up her weight ways. Something along those things, probably said. Yeah, I, I, I didn't understand that at all, why he would want to do that i mean he was like i guess he was saying like that his daughter was she was having trouble because in the beginning that she was trying to kill herself so i guess he felt like a, a man will help her i guess settle down help her get stability or whatever but i just felt like having asking another man to take your daughter and i'll pay you a million dollars to do it is it's crazy <laughs> yeah it is a bit mental see, then, then there's a better scene as well where Bond was reading uh, Playboy magazine yes which I thought at, at 1969 I don't know when Playboy started but it was pretty new then so that was a big deal product placement job yeah Definitely, I, I, it's you know that I feel like putting that in the James Bond movie though it's perfect. That's something I can see James Bond reading. Yeah, I'm sure he's got a few of them back at home. Um, <laughs> but, but when he went up to the mountains as well, he started sleeping around with the women in the mountains up in there. And there. And I thought to myself, well, he can't be out much in love with Tracy, but there was really no need for him to do that. I mean, I've, we've seen Bond in previous movies maybe sleep with some of the women or whatever the Bond guards to get information. But when he was there, he didn't really get any information out of these, these women. Okay, he found out what Blofeld was up to with the, the what was that, the hypnotizing thing? Yeah. Well, no, I was just going to say as well, because I don't know which way you added this, which way you kind of added it in or whatever, or the sequels or whatever, but, um, or, or as the movie goes along. But I made notes here just about, did you notice as well when he was cleaning out his desk? About the relics from the previous movies. Yes, which I read also. They put that in there as a way to let people know that this is the same James Bond. So. Yeah, and then you can hear the Barry tunes as well being played from the previous movies. Which I I, I, I always liked that scene. I thought that was pretty smart to do that. You know, um, at a time when we be taken for granted either there will be a new Bond after four or five movies. Back then, it was, this was brand new to people to see a new face in there, as we said earlier. So I thought it was a very pretty smart way to kind of like tie in this character in the new movie or this actor. I agree. I mean, they definitely did their due diligence in making sure that the viewer is aware of what's going on. I, I did appreciate that very much. I thought that was actually... Some really cool act, really thinking ahead because they didn't have to do that, but I guess they knew their audience would probably be a little bit confused because this was the first Bond change. And in the 60s, yes. I don't know what trades were like. I mean, I know that they had like uh, magazines and stuff like that that people would read about movies, but I don't know how many people are aware of like how acting changes work because, like you said, there weren't really sequels, so it's definitely an original thing. Yeah, it definitely was. Uh, I think that the Planet of the Apes was the only two real franchises. I mean, Bond, if you look back in the history of franchises, Bond has to be probably the first, really. Yeah, as far as, I mean, the, the uh, what year was the first Planet of the Apes? I want to say like 1968, 1969. Around then, yeah. Yeah, and then, I mean, and they kind of followed like a story where they were true sequels, and at least the first one did. So... You know, because they did bring back some actors from the original Planet of the Apes in the second one. But then I think that was it after that. Yeah, Charlton Heston came back for the, the first one, the first sequel, uh, reluctantly, I think. Um, but it was a completely different type of story. Um, but the, the good thing about the first Planet of the Apes movies, I don't know how many there was. What was there, six or something? Within the 70s? Yeah, then they got a couple in the 70s. And then I think they were done by, like, seven... They, Put out like four really fast, and I think they were done until we got to 2001 with uh, Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes. Yeah, well, those original movies, at least they, they, they have a through line there. You know, their, their stories, it's a new story every movie, but there's a bit of continuity through it all, you know, with the same characters and some of the same actors, and it all ties in. Whereas if you watch the Bond movies in sequence, you know, there's inconsistencies. 
yeah, there's a lot of inconsistencies that you have to read, like, you know, really just, you have to know going in that it's kind of its own contained story. But what made this one unique, and we haven't even talked about it yet, and this will be a spoiler alert for everybody watching, uh, the ending to this movie is probably the most famous thing about this movie. Yeah, um, I actually think that the, the ending to this movie is the best ending to a Bond movie there's ever been. It's all right. Quite all right, really. She's having a rest. I agree 100% as far as endings go. Then There's no doubt. I, I was actually surprised because, like, we were just, we kind of got a little off topic about the fact of their romance. It's weird that they kind of did build up this eventual love for each other. But by the very end, when they do get married, you do care about their relationship. You feel like Bond actually has finally found somebody. Because they do hint earlier in the movie that, you know, he's got to settle down at some point. And he actually found his person, and to have her taken away just almost immediately, it breaks your heart. One thing I actually have to say, be positive about in the movie, about even that reason be, even though he starts off and he, he's a wee bit shaky and stuff, and you think it's a Connery and Preston stuff, but I, I think as it, the movie goes on, he makes it his own. I agree. Uh, yeah, and I do think that the romance that actually blossoms between him and Tracy is genuine. It doesn't feel forced. It's not burst either. And I know we talked about the, the wrong time, about it maybe being a bit tighter. Um, but at the same time, it does feel like it blossoms throughout the movie, which makes the ending a wee bit more impactful. Yeah. As you say, you know, in the other Bond movies, he gets the girl and it's always kind of paid for laughs. Mm -hmm. He always ends up kissing her, and then the title screen comes up at the end. You know, that's basically how they ended most of the Bond movies before this. But this time, I mean, it must have been shocking, too. Like, who would have saw that coming in 1969 to have her a drive-by shooting? And, you know, you think they're fine, and then you pan over, and she's dead. And, and George Lazenby, the way he grabs her, and, like, you feel his pain. He does a good job acting yeah. in this scene. Yeah, exactly. Because you see them find the weapon... And it doesn't show you her obviously being hit. He runs around the car, and up to this point, you're used to Bond winning. Yeah. Um, and in the other previous movies, you know, it's usually maybe somebody's trying to reach Bond, and he's just kind of like, oh, they will speak to them in later, and they do say he kisses a Bond girl and the Titans go up. But when he gets in the car and he says, that's Blofeld, and he turns and she can see that she's been shot, um, it is very shocking. And I'm led to believe that there were scenes that he'd done where he was actually tearing up and crying. And it was the director that actually said, don't want to see you cry, no tears. Huh. Uh -huh. So he was made to do the scene without the tears. And I believe that Lazenby got a lot of stick for that for years. You know, contact, be your very wooden, you know, weren't crying. And he had to defend himself by saying that, that's the way I just told you to do it. Yeah, I mean, I, from what I, it, it just a, I read what you read as well, but the jump on that, apparently they didn't film this scene until 5 at night. They brought him in at 8 in the morning, and they just rehearsed all day, and they wanted to make him tired, basically, to have him get in the right frame of mind for it, like to be like already in a kind of like a chaotic mind stance, So, which is crazy. I mean, that's one thing that I always fascinates me about directors when they try and manipulate their actors and like almost like you've heard, I don't know if you've heard the stories about the um the shining with Stanley Kubrick and Shelley Duvall what he would do to her yes I've heard I've heard the stories about Kubrick what scene is it in the shining where Jack Nicholson follows um Shelley Duvall what area is it in the hotel it's like a waiting area where, he, where he's actually taping and he follows her up the stairs and she's got the box yeah yeah, I'm near certain that they've done that scene, they, I don't know, hands of times. <laughs> yeah, just put them through the ringer. I mean, like, I, I mean, I guess when you're an actor, that's part of the job, but when the director's not communicating that to you and they're just trying to, like, manipulate your actual mind to get the shot they want, I mean, it's great. We get it on screen the way we want to see it, and it's awesome for us, but I just can't imagine as an actor, like, when you find that out after, yeah, I was just kind of fucking when you had to get what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> and Jack as well I think he was probably trying to do it but Jack as well because he's supposed to be you know Raiders Black probably hasn't slept for days and I mean yeah that and that is one of the most incredible Jack performances so 
you know, you can't argue with the results. It's just the way you get them is kind of where it kind of gets a little tough. Well, you wouldn't get away without the day, Joel. Oh, no, 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 not 2023. No, they would, there is a lot of protocols in place to make sure that doesn't happen. And if it did happen, you know, it'd be on social media within the hour. Well, the stories of uh, William Friedkin and the Exorcist. Oh, my God. Yeah, those are crazy, too. Firing off guns and just to get the genuine scares and not even telling them that they're going to do it. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's a bit crazy. It is. I know James Cameron. I said it's good that he wants to get results, but there's, there is a lane. There is a line. It's a, and you know, and nowadays, I mean, it, it it's tough though, because we've spoken in the fact that movies today aren't, they don't look as good as they used to. And you know, they probably, don't get as much and you wonder if like having all these restrictions does kind of play a part in how these movies do turn out yeah yeah i understand what you're saying um maybe maybe so um who was it was it was it martin brandon i can't remember this story but there, there was an actor that basically was working an old time actor i'm near certain it was martin brandon he's working with a young actor i can't remember who it was and they were doing all this crazy stuff to get in the character and Marlon Brando says, what are you doing? And he said something like, oh, I'm trying to get a character. And Marlon Brando says, why don't you just try acting? <laughs> well, that, I kind of do agree with that. There are definitely different acting styles. There's the guys like who want to stay in character the whole time. And then there's the guys like Marlon Brando or uh, Brad Pitt, I heard, can turn on a dime. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, those act, that is acting. And that that is more impressive. I I've always kind of, you know, I do think there is a line in that sense, too. Like, when you hear stories about, uh, why am I drawing a blank on his name? The guy from, you know, Phantom Thread, My Left Foot. Daniel Day-Lewis. Daniel Day-Lewis. You've heard, I've heard him, like, you know, like, when he was in My Left Foot, like, he made people push him around on set in the wheelchair. Or, method acting. Yeah, all the method acting. And then you got him in, um, apparently, in uh, Lincoln, they would say you got to refer to him as Mr. President. That might be going a little too far, you know, in that sense. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I think that's going a bit far. I, I, I would like to think that if you're an actor, that as you say, you can turn it on when you need to and you can switch it off when, when you don't need it. Like I've heard stories about Eric Stoltz. He was originally cast as Marty McFly in Back to the Future. Yeah, which uh, that would have been a very different movie. And I heard it wasn't great. I've seen some footage of that. Yeah, well, apparently, um, according to the actor that played this, he says when he came on set, he... When anybody called him uh, Eric, he says, "No, call me Marty." <laughs> and he says, "Apart from apart from Lee Thompson, she was the only one that was allowed to call him Eric." Ah, uh, well, that that does make. I mean, it makes a little bit sense because then they did end up firing him and getting their original guy, uh, Michael J. Fox, who they wanted. Which I always thought they asked Michael J. Fox, and he said no until I watched that new Michael J. Yeah. Fox documentary, and he they only asked his agent, and his agent said that he tried to get him out of doing Family Ties, and he couldn't, so he didn't even bother telling him. Yeah, they wouldn't let him out of Family Ties, so they didn't tell him, and they reluctantly got Eric Stoltz, and it wasn't working. It wasn't very funny uh, he's not a comedian i never think of comedy when i think of eric schultz unless it's accidental like in pulp fiction where he's like you know heroin's coming back in a big way other than that he's more of a dramatic <laughs> actor to me yeah they, they said he just didn't get it he, he just didn't get the comedy and it just wasn't working and apparently um zemeckis and gail went to spielberg and showed him the footies and spielberg says i agree yes and they'd already spent five million dollars on the movie Oof. and the only person that could have went to I think it was Sid Sheinberg who was running Universal Pictures at the time. Spielberg was only one that could have went and said him, listen, this isn't working. We need to redo this with Michael J. Fox. Could you imagine having to actually reshoot all that stuff and getting all of the sets back together, all the cast and crew, and just having to reshoot everything you already did? I can never imagine that. Do you know what's funny? You sit here as, as maybe as an audience member and think, imagine having to do that all again, but... Imagine like these guys are actors and actresses that have maybe worked on stage for many, many years. That's and a probably good... go out and do a performance twice a day or every single night for six days of the week. So if they're kind of in the zone then, and they're actors, then it's probably water off a dog's back to them. Or water off a dog's back to them. Um, but like, even when Michael J. Fox started um, filming Back to the Future, he was still working on Family Ties. Yeah, he was working... Um... So he was doing days, I believe, on Family Ties. He said, go home, sleep for two hours, and then he would do nights on Back to the Future, which is... Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, and he was... Because in the recent documentary I saw, he was even saying, he's like, I would forget what set I was on because I was just so sleep-deprived. And 
I've never been so sleep deprived to the point where you get like that. I've got it to where like you're driving and falling asleep, but not to the point where you forget where you are. Delirious. <laughs> yeah, like you just don't even you would lose all comprehension of just like what you're doing. And he thought that he did a horrible job on Back to the Future, and like the, when they reproached him about like his how his performance was, he's like, I know, I'm sorry. And he's like, they're like, no, you did a great job. <laughs> you know what's funny? Like, that probably added to his performance, strangely enough. Yeah, no, probably. It, it Little things with actors really helped them to push it over the top. And they don't even realize it at the time. But, I mean, I've noticed that in a little bit of recording videos where sometimes I'll think that they're atrocious. And then I go back and look, oh, my God, that was pretty good. And then you get the reverse where you thought you nailed it. And you're like, no, that sucked. <laughs> ah you know i I, listen i could always at least make it look somewhat decent even if i could even if i have to like do a little bit of tricks with the editing or whatever (laughs) but yeah you know you gotta you gotta just look it up the internet's a powerful thing you can find out almost any way to fix anything nowadays yeah see obviously at the minute i don't have anything like that and i've always wanted to do videos and do kind of reviews and I asked a few of my mates years ago and they weren't interested. Love movies, but they're interested in doing anything like this. And now it's kind of taken off. The internet's taken off. There's so many people doing channels and doing reviews and all the rest. And as I say, um, it's something I've always been interested in and wanting to do because I've got this mind of useless information. Yeah, you're a lot like me in that sense. That's kind of I always kind of felt that same way too. And then I just finally last year decided just to try it, see what happens, just because... You know, what's the worst that happens? But I had to teach myself how to do all of this. I had no idea, no training or anything like that. I took a computer graphics class in high school when I was in high school. So (laughs) that was it. (laughs) That's all I had. So I had nothing. And, you know, it's difficult. But, like, nowadays it's easier just because everybody makes tutorials on everything. It's like buying a house. I knew nothing about how to fix anything on a house. I'm still not great at it. But if I certain stuff, I could just go on YouTube and look it up. Listen, do you know what? You're right. Everything's at your fingertips now. At your at a phone on the same. See if I need to find something. I'll go on YouTube and look it up. You know what I mean? It's like how do you do this or how do you do? even if it is even DIY. You know what I mean? It's like how do you do this? But like my dad's very good at DIY, and it's like it's like everything. Like I speak to people who wouldn't even pick up a paintbrush, and I would say to them, "Why well, do it yourself?" And they'd be like, "Don't know how to." Like, nobody does till you start. Exactly. So it's the same as yourself or yourself taught, but you don't know until you actually start doing it. You gotta try. You just gotta keep trying and like you know push through, and that's just with anything in the world. You know, you gotta just give it a shot. You never know. It could be exactly the, could be the thing you're the best at. You never you just don't know. But you gotta give it a give it just the old college try. <laughs> exactly. You know. Here, just seeing here, some of the notes here. See, um, we were talking there about things you couldn't get away with. What did you think of Tracy getting KO'd by her dad? Yeah, uh, that bothered me a little bit. <laughs> I'm not going to... that kind of break that back, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, it, you're not allowed to hit women anymore, but back then, I mean, it's his daughter, and he just literally laid her out. <laughs> <laughs> that I had that down in a note as well. I was like, what the hell? <laughs> but there, I mean, even just anyway back then, Bond, I'm pretty sure in all these movies, hits women, so... <laughs> that's just kind yeah, of well, that was one thing that amazed me I noticed amazing me done that earlier in the movie as well which was reminiscent of what how Connery used to treat the women in the 60s Bond movies yeah well their relationship started off rocky so that yeah he hit her he didn't really he had no care for her at all in the beginning he, like, he didn't even have any interest at all of settling down or nothing that's why I actually did kind of like their arc in the sense that it really was a, a full 180 on their relationship yeah, that's what I'm saying about it. I like how it actually developed. As you can see, it's not, you know, he was he was attracted to her, but he, he wasn't interested at the start of any type of relationship with her or settling down. And maybe his job had something to do with that. Um, and maybe when he did get um, let go, that was a wee, he was a little bit more open then to having that relationship. And then when he found out about Blofeld, then it was all business again with Bond. Yeah, actually, you just kind of, like, made something click in my mind about that. Maybe that was what did it for him. Like, it was actually, the, I can have a life after, you know, the M, after MI6. I can. Maybe I should start looking yeah. to settle down. So maybe you're right. Maybe it just, like, opened that door in his mind that he's always just 
kept close. Like he never wanted to think about it. But now the possibility like, okay, well, I can't do this forever. Maybe I should be open to a relationship and settling down with someone. I didn't even think about that till you just said that. Yeah. I think so, and then and then 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 he goes reverse back to tape when he finds it where Bluefelt is. And you remember he goes back to him and he says, "Look, I can go up there and find find Bluefelt." And that's just it. That once he finds Blofeld, he's back into the the game of like, "This is my arch emesis. This is the one I can't take down." And unfortunately, yeah. he doesn't get that in this movie either. No, I actually thought that Blofeld was a wee bit of a clutch back grenade. Remember he drops it into the bobsled. Yes, the bobsled scene I like, by the way. Which they foreshadowed it very early in the movie uh, when they were actually flying over it for the first time over the mountains. You could see a bobsled kind of going down and he looks at it. So I wonder if that's what they implanted the idea for us. Well, I have to commend that they actually had time to put their helmets and all on before they got in the bobsled because it's pretty worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they actually had time to put their helmets on before they would even car. <laughs> and then when he throws the grenade and it lands in between, you know, where the box is coming down, and a blue spawn down, but a blue spawn in front of Bluefelt, so he's able to then run and jump to be able to get in to where Bluefelt's box, box is. So uh, the, the grenade didn't even affect Bond at all. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. That's just Bond stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was great, but then obviously there were, there were some really good one-liners in this, this film. Like, um, you know, whenever uh, Blofeld gets caught in the, the tree, Bond says uh, he's bronzed off. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that was hysterical too. Which, I mean, you thought, I guess, were we supposed to think he was dead or were we just supposed to think he was caught there? Because it was a little bit silly. I was like, that would be a really, I mean, I knew that he wasn't dead, but I was just wondering what you were supposed to think at the time. Do you think he was supposed, you were supposed to think he was dead? I was like, that would be a silly way to have Blofeld go out. <laughs> Yeah, you see his head stuck in the, the trees. Um, I'm not 100% sure. I didn't think about it. I think it's because I've seen the movie and I know, I know the ending. I knew he didn't die. I didn't really think about it. I don't think he looks dead um, in the trees. He just does look knocked out or something. But I thought it was funny when he comes back with a neck brace on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least they uh, acknowledged he got hurt. <laughs> I guess it's the best we can look at that. Yeah, Bond didn't even get a scratch on him that whole time. <laughs> yeah. Through everything that happened to him. But he's James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, I, that, listen, that didn't bother me at all. But I just thought, I'm just thinking about some other one-liners. Like, you know, for example, when, when the, the skier, when then the memory goes into the, what was that machine? What was it cutting up in the snow? That's and a- even fell in. Ended, and then it came out all red. Yeah, uh, what are they? I'm too, I think that's just a snow, like a snowblower. Is pretty much what that is, because it just looks like a gigantic one. I'm and not. Says he had a lot of guts. Yeah, he had a lot of guts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, I actually, other than the rear projection stuff, I did like the ski scene. But I'm also a sucker for any time there's snow. I don't know why. I always think that it's just so photogenic. So I'm always into it when there's snow. Yeah, but that made me wonder as well when I was watching last night. Out of all the Bond movies, I think we've had a ski scene nearly with every single Bond except Connery. Is that true? I I can't recall off the top of my head a Connery ski scene. I know for a fact that Dalton, Pierce, and Daniel Craig have definitely had one. Roger Moore, I know, had one. He probably had multiple. Yeah. If I'm... I had a couple. Of yeah. There's a few ski scenes. And then um, The Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah, I mean, I guess you're right. I guess if Sean Connery probably is the only one who's never had one. I, I never even... Lazenby has one movie. Became synonymous with the ball guy, the skiing, getting chased. <laughs> I just love the fact that no matter what James Bond is doing, he's always in the full getup for it. No matter what the colors are, if he's going to stand out, it doesn't matter. He's going to put it on. <laughs> <laughs> well, here, funny enough, is um, it, it, it is that the, the spy who loved me, he's wearing like a yellow ski suit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, do you want to blend in? I was thinking about that when I was, I think it was Thunderball or something. He's got the the wetsuit on and it's an orange wetsuit. I'm like, you couldn't pick like the dark blue to blend in with the water. Like, that's the most, that's going to stand out in front of everyone. They're going to find you. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But again, I think it was actually, I wasn't sure. Was it Matt that pointed it out, or was it yourself that pointed it out during that review? Because the audience probably needed to know that's Bond. 
Yeah. You wouldn't have worn the same colour of wetsuit as everybody else because you'd be like, well, who am I rooting for here? Yeah, which is a good point. It's definitely more for the viewer. I think that's where we're supposed to take the logic out and know that, like, it's for us to actually know who's Bond in this scenario. Because, yeah, if they're all wearing wetsuits, how are you supposed to know which one is which? Same thing, like, when he's skiing. Like, if there's multiple skiers, you're going to need to know, like, which one's Bond for us. In the real world, yeah. if this was to happen, that would be a pretty damn dumb choice, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I definitely would. So... <laughs> But overall, I thought this movie was pretty good. It's not my favorite Bond movie. I don't think it would even crack my top ten personally, but I do think it's one of the better made Bond movies. I don't know what you feel about it. Look, I actually think it's actually a great Bond movie. Um, I think it's maybe a bit long. Long. Could have caught a wee bit out of the middle. Definitely when he's uh, over there, you know, in person, doing his best Clark Kent impression was the best I could think of that. I thought that there's a lot you could have cut out. They definitely... uh, had too much exposition in there for us. We didn't need to have that much going on, yeah. I felt like. Yeah, I felt as if um, when he escaped from the, the Blofeld's lair that there was too much kind of chases that could have maybe added it down to one chase or, you know what I mean, or, or took a chase out and just made it to do, you know what I mean, like, made the guy, like, they really have to have, like, him ski, a ski chase, a car chase, then the bouncing, and then another ski chase. Yeah, we probably didn't need two ski chases. We probably could have just had the one, and they could have just found another way for us to get to the cabin to have the moments that we needed there. We didn't need to have so much before it and then so much after it. There was probably a way to edit it down on both sides. But definitely, I think, more exactly. on the before end, I think. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I also just feel like, um, I wrote a few inch down here, just if Connery was in the road or Rura, I think it would be better. I think it would have been elevated to one of the best bonds of all time. I agree, actually. I think that it would have definitely been a lot better with Sean Connery, 100%. Because, you know, especially since we get him after, it would have definitely... It might have actually ended up being one of his best performances if he was allowed to do it. Well, he didn't want to do it. Yeah, I mean, if he had stuck it out, you know, up to that point, um, I think it could have been considered his best. I mean, I think it could have been up there for, with Immersion with Love, because it is Sean Connery. And there, there is a lot, a lot more emotional weight to him as Secret Service. Oh, 100%. From Russian love? Yeah, from Russian with Love, that's the one where we get the jetpack. No, that's not the one with the jetpack. That's the second one. No, uh, that's Thunderbolt. That's Thunderbolt. Yeah, no, this is definitely more in line with, because from Russian with Love actually had a little bit more dramatics. Uh, Thunderball's like kind of when they started to go a little far. I think that's why they kind of tuned it back a little bit once we got to here. I think up until that point, what is this, our, our sixth ball movie? I think it's up there with some of the best up to that point. Up to this point, I would probably put it at like, two or three i still think that uh goldfinger is probably the best of the originals until here and then this would probably go i still think it's i think dr no is still the weakest so far of the ones i've watched up to now going in dr no is one of my top 10 all-time bond movies i don't know i just cooled on it which kind of sucks a little bit because i used to really love dr no me your Mansi secret service up to that point of the bond movies um is definitely falls in the bracket of one of the best like for me, From Russia with Love is my favorite Bond movie. Um, up until Majesty's, obviously, it'd be number one. I think Goldfinger, for me, is number two. Goldfinger is the quintessential Bond movie. I think if you're going to show anybody a Bond movie, um, show them Goldfinger first. Um, it's got all the tropes yeah. that you need to have in a Bond movie in that one, for sure. And it's just well-made. It's well-made. It's exciting. It's It's easy to follow. Um, and as you say, John, it has all the troops there. It has a famous Bond song, you know, famous Bond guard. It's got Connery. Now, the only thing to make people people off, put people off is the, the time period of when it was made. But if you can get past that, then for me, that's the quintessential Bond movie. Um, now, I have a real soft spot for uh, Thunderball. Yeah, I, I like Thunderball a lot after I rewatched it. I'm not going to sit here and lie to you. I had a good time with that one. It, that's a fun Bond movie. It's almost like a hangout movie. It is, and it's a good one. It, you know, it, like you said, the one thing is that people just need to understand that, yes, these movies came out in the 1960s. Go watch other 1960s movies. They are a lot slower than these. So if you can't get yep. – you just got to be able to – like, do what you do. Put your mind there. Try and take yourself to the time period and try and understand that, you know, things were different. Yeah, exactly. So I actually think after that, Mass, or Master Secret Service would be probably be fourth. Oh, okay. 
All time? Number four, huh? Well, just to that point. Okay. I'm just ranking them on that, to that point of the first six Bond movies yeah. that we've seen to that, that particular time, 1969. Um, for me, that would be fourth. I guess I... Um, I think I, I don't know if I would put it off the top of my head if it's out of the six to this point. I guess I, I maybe a little bit higher than you. I still think I'd put Thunderball, Goldfinger. I, maybe I'd put it at three because I do think that the first two are definitely the two weakest up until that point, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Just because I think once they hit Goldfinger, they really just start finding their footing. And then I pretty much enjoy them all after that. Now, Roger Moore will be the ultimate test for me because I was just not a fan of the Roger Moore movies. So, but it's been a very long time. Yeah, I was the same as yourself. I grew up watching Moore on TV. His movies were always on television growing up in the 80s. And he was like, by Bond. But then when I got a bit older, I watched him. I was like, he's horrible. And I started watching the Connery ones and really loved Connery and wouldn't watch a Moore Bond movie wouldn't watch one and then a couple of years ago I bought the box set just to watch the newer ones because I hadn't seen them in so long and I really enjoyed his era as Bond if you just take it with a pinch of salt and not take it too seriously and just enjoy it and go along with her for the ride now there's a, there's obviously a difference in quality between the movies some are better than others and there's a handful of which are great awful but I found him to be a very fun Bond. Yeah, I'm looking forward to rewatching him. We got Diamonds Are Forever next, and then we'll uh, we'll go into the Roger Moore ones. But uh, I think that we got everything we wanted to get in here. And uh, next one's Diamonds Are Forever. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for being us here on another episode of Let's Talk. This is our James Bond reviews. I appreciate David Shamrock for being here with me. I, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, hopefully, I'll, he'll be back. Let us know in the comments section below what you guys thought of this episode. Did you enjoy Shamrock? Let him know. And if you did, make sure you like this video, subscribe to the channel, and then tell all your friends about us. Mm-hmm.